Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with all the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, as well as a show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app, we keep you bang up to date with all things tech every day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. This week, our editor, Niall Kitson, is chatting with Jenny Ratcliffe, who's better known as the People Hacker. With an ability to talk away into a secure building or spot a psychopath from 100 feet, Jenny has become a world expert in social engineering and helps everyone from companies to poker players to protect themselves from being read and attacked. This really is a fascinating interview about scams and cons of all kinds, online and offline, and how easy it is for someone to get your personal information from you. But first... Now I got some personal information from Jenny by asking how she got into this in the first place. Do you know what it is? It's it's just that when I grew up in Liverpool, and Dublin would have been the same, the city wasn't what it is now. You know, it yeah. was on its knees. Mm. And um, and so, you know, you look for things to do. And we used to get into build, old buildings, as kids do, mm. and mess around in these sort of dilapidated buildings and things. And I kind of got a taste for just being in places I shouldn't be. And... and, and <laughs> You know, just did not nicking anything or, or stealing or doing anything wrong except for being there. But like, mm. I did it for you know a long time, uh, and uh, and I never really stopped. And I've, you know, but you'd never imagine there'd be a paid career in it. But you know, of course there is because if I can do that, then the bad guys can do that, and that's what businesses want to know. They want someone with that kind of attack perspective, as mm. opposed to you know. You can't even hide that in necessarily in a security team. It's very difficult if you're defending a place to have an attack, mm. to look like you, like an attacker would. It, it's, it's sort of the holy grail of protection is, is, is trying to replicate those types of attacks, really. So you can defeat it there. I guess for anyone who isn't in, anyone who isn't familiar with the idea of social engineering, just give us a very brief overview of what it is. So most people will be familiar with um, uh, a typical hacker profile that we'd see on the news. So when the big uh, attacks come out, like WannaCry, for example, even people who are not in the security industry sort of understand what a computer hacker is and see lots of pictures of them. A social engineer is still a hacker, so still targets businesses, still is looking to, to, to steal money or to, um, to extort a business, but they would use uh, the human side of the business to get to those things as opposed to technical means. So when we talk about the human side of a business, um, is this kind of, you know, where, wherever there is a person, there is an attack vector. So say if you have a problem with your iTunes account, just to pluck an, an example out of the air, and there's a helpline number associated with it, is that sort of the kind of point of entry you're looking at? Absolutely. And the thing is, it doesn't really matter on the size of the business or even if we're just individuals. The way a malicious social engineer would work would be to look for a human um, because that human can be persuaded, fooled, exploited. And in the case of um, help desks and problems with our technology, that's a really good way in because a lot of people are not familiar with technology. And we can think that we're talking to a genuine person when we're actually not. And that would be a really good example of malicious social engineering that we're all vulnerable to. 
Okay, so say um, you have somebody that is looking to take over another person's uh, another person's um, account. Again, we'll just stick with iTunes, but this could be any sort of service out there. Could be Amazon, could be anything. Um, what kind of personal information do people look to harvest, and and where do they go to harvest personal information before uh, taking on somebody else's identity, if you will? Well, I think you know one of the things that we are all familiar with these days would be um, social media in all its forms. So just typically your Facebooks, your Twitters, Instagram, Snapchat, you know, there's so many. And we all use it often without really thinking about the fact that that information really is public or easily found. Now, in social engineering attacks, what we're really trying to do is get people to trust us, trying to make sure that we're familiar with everything and build a story, whether you're trying to impersonate that person or fool that person. And unfortunately, most people don't really guard their information very well on social media so it's really easy to find someone on social media and not just social media just on the internet generally there's a lot of information that's legally and freely available if you know where to look and then that type of information is used to help either create that false persona of you know i'm that person or get to the person um in an irresponsible or criminal way just because you know a little bit about them so I guess this is, uh, seeing as we're in the age of overshare, people really are kind of leaving themselves open to this kind of attack. Yeah, and particularly, you know, obviously one of the main areas that we'd worry about from a security point of view, from a defense point of view, would be younger people. Because, you know, people are sort of in their teens and 20s and even younger um, have grown up with social media and the internet. And what we've done is that technology's taken over our lives so quickly that we forgot to be careful on those things and on that kind of website. And so what happens is we share too much. And before we share something, we should always think, you know, is this information, who am I allowing to see this information? Have I checked my privacy settings? Do I want everyone to know about this, to be able to find it in a year or two years time? And really the main question is, what could someone who meant me harm or wanted to steal from me, what could someone with malintent do with this piece of information that I'm sharing? For example, people checking into restaurants or checking into airports when they're going on holiday, obviously advertising the fact that they're away. You know, hmm. back in the day, um, you always used to make sure that, you know, that you, you cancelled the milk so that, <laughs> you know, if you went on holiday, it wasn't obvious to everyone there were 10 bottles of milk on your step, you know. Um, and it's kind of that type of thing. I think we're just very naive to think that um, people wouldn't use that information in a malicious way. Yeah, I think there was a great example a couple of years ago when Twitter was becoming popular that um, whenever people would post, oh, I'm going going to this show or I'm going over here or I'm going on holiday, there was a, a website called Please Rob Me, I think it was called. And it was just people's status updates saying when they'd be out of town. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's not just, you know, uh, when we're not, you know, showing where our whereabouts is, but it's our habits, our hobbies, you know, the things that we like and enjoy so that if someone wanted to, you know, create a conversation with you with a view to um, some kind of criminal act. And they knew that you were, you know, a fan of a certain football team or, you know, you did something for a hobby. Then all of those are potential ways in for a criminal. And I think we just, like you say, it's oversharing. Or rather, it's not so much oversharing. What people need to do is think about what they share and then make a decision based on how big they think the risk is and how they think they can cope. It's very much... um 
that rule of whenever you go to post something on social media, you take a breath and you sort of think, okay, could this, is this something that could be used against me? You know, is this a heat of the moment thing or am I actually contributing something? It's difficult, though. I mean, you know, absolutely right. We should always do that. But none of us do. You know, it's very difficult. So, you know, everybody is tempted at times to post something or say something. Um, and that's really why it works, because it's so easy to post it and it's sort of in a moment of excitement or, you know, oh, this is interesting. or I've seen something, you know, something that might be of interest or that I, I want to share with my friends. So it's really difficult to take those few minutes and those few seconds and really pull ourselves back. Uh, and that's why we need to keep getting the message out there in the security industry over and over again. If you know, keep reminding people of the dangers uh, until eventually maybe it sinks in, hopefully. OK, so to, to take a look at sort of things on the other side of the desk, on the other side of the help desk, how does an attack like this manifest itself when somebody gets through to the, the person on the help desk and, you know, the attacker has X amount of information in front of them? How does this break down? You know, how do you go about convincing someone that you're not who you say you are? On a help desk? Yeah, for example. Well, I mean, I think, it, it, I suppose it depends on the relationship, you know. Um, and, and if it's just uh, somebody you're ringing to, I don't know, for example, try and say, uh, transfer money into a bank account or, hmm. or those types of things. One of the problems with help desks is that people are trained to be helpful. Their job is to be helpful. Um, and people uh, who work for organisations might be worried about um, not being helpful. So from a, um, certainly calling in as a malicious social engineer to a, um, a help desk in an organisation, um, what you have to do is try and find someone who responds to that fear, who's got that worry that they've got to help you, even though it might be going around organisational procedure, or they'll get into trouble. And so there's lots of ways to do that. And everyone has their own psychological levers um, that we could try, you know, different people, different levers. Some people wouldn't be persuaded by fear, but might be persuaded by greed. So whatever it is, we all have our levers and we have information, as we've just been speaking about. The more information, the more research you can do and the more informed you are, the more um, the greater the likelihood that that attack will um, succeed. But within a business, the main thing that people can do to prevent that type of thing is to really let staff know that it's better to stop doing something or to question a person than carry on doing something out of fear or because, you know, they sound mostly okay, but I kind of felt that there was something wrong. A lot of the time, help desk staff um, keep going when they shouldn't just because they're scared they'll get the blame. So mm -hmm. businesses help with that by, you know, by reassuring staff that that won't be the case. It's kind of the downside of uh, having a really strong customer service culture, isn't it? You know, it is, but at the same time, what we need to work on all the time is, um, you know, not just the, the customer service culture, but the culture of the organisation as well. You know, it's, times have changed. It's not the same as it used to be. Um, these attacks are growing all the time. As technology gets better, it gets easier to get through people. Um, and so what we have to do is really make sure that staff within companies are aware of that. And, and, and that's really up to the organisations to keep reinforcing the point, as I just mentioned before, with, you know, with the public, if you like. We need to reinforce the point all the time within organisations. People have to be able to feel that they can report a problem. And if they don't feel like that, then you will not know what type of attacks are coming your way. And to look at different styles of attack then, which other kinds of attack do you find are the most common? 
So I think, you know, uh, one of the things that this information gathering exercise that social engineers do is, is useful is what we would call a spear phishing email. So I think a lot of people are sort of familiar with the fraudulent emails that come through, you know, the type of thing that says, oh, you know, hi, Niall, give me your bank account details. I've got, you know, two million pounds for you. Mm-hmm. I think people kind of know that that or a lot of people would know that that would probably not be uh, legitimate. Yeah. But spear phishing email would be um, something that's written, bearing in mind that research on the individual. So, for example, uh, a young mother might receive an email, you know, that's connected with uh, children, you know, in some way. But it would be very specific to her and to her life and to her area. Um, and therefore, much more likely that people will click on the link um, and follow up those emails. So I think what we're seeing more of is more sophisticated um, email types of attacks, by which I mean not just an email that goes out to a million people hoping somebody clicks on it, Mm. but emails that go out to one or two people based on the information we can find out about them and pretty much guaranteeing that they're going to click on that link. It it seems that the the strategy, if you will, of, you know, click link here, click the pop-up, fill in the form... These things haven't changed much uh, at all. It's It just comes down to being able to convince someone that it's from a reliable source. You know, the thing is, social engineering, you know, we call it social engineering these days, but it's the oldest trick in the book. It's been called, you know, it's con artists, it's scams, it's hustles. You know, it, we've changed the name um, sort of to suit the, the, the way that the world's gone. But actually, most people understand social engineering. They know that there are people who will con you. And as you say, the only thing that's really different is that the technology has enabled quicker research on a target for a criminal. You can research them much more quickly. Um, and just, a, you know, a faster way of getting to people, um, you know, at a distance. But the actual attack vector of you know fooling someone through psychology uh fooling someone getting them to trust you or making someone frightened enough to do something that's not in their interest to do is probably the oldest trick in the book it was probably done by the first human being who wanted something from another human being and was prepared to lie to get it and kind of relies on people's ignorance of technology as well doesn't it it relies on, on that and on lots of things. It's not just ignorance of technology, but people um, people don't like to be too suspicious. We have a, an innate quality. We, we, we like to trust other people. We're social beings. And so what happens is, from a technical point of view, we might not understand anything. But from a, from a people perspective, we don't want to think that we're being fooled. And actually, um, I've, I've done a lot of sort of assignments where trying to persuade someone that they were the victim of, of a scan of a, <laughs> of a scam or a con um, is actually quite difficult. They still don't believe it, even though they've lost their money. Mm. And what, what sort of, I mean, you've doubtless seen an awful lot of scams over the years. So uh, which ones have stood out for you as being particularly ingenious or, or devious? Well, I mean, I, I also there's a couple, a couple of times that, so I, I sort of do this from a defense point of view, we replicate attacks on organizations uh, and without blowing my own trumpet, I think the most ingenious thing I saw that I did from a physical point of view was that they told me that um, I, I worked with an organization who put a lot of, uh, about two million pounds at the time into their fences and perimeter security. And the guy said to me, we want you to try and get in, but you know, we don't think you will. He said to me, the only way that you're going to get in is if someone leaves a door open. 
So I just printed a sign saying, please do not close this door, put it on the door, and nobody closed the door. So, you know, I always think that, would, that, that was a moment of genius that doesn't happen very often for me, and I'm, I'm always quite proud of that one. But I also think, you know, just just um, one of my favourite kind of scams, which is a social classic social engineering example, and we shouldn't say favourite because it's as if you admire this, and I don't, but there was a huge diamond heist uh, in a bank in 2007 in Europe, I won't name the bank, where a guy um, uh, who police assume are using a false name, which, which is a direct got into the bank and made friends with the bank tellers over a number of months um, and you know, eventually got to know them really, really well, gradually increased his access to the more secure areas and stole just under 15 million euros worth of diamonds. But the thing was, he didn't use any, any weapon uh, and no tech, just his charm. And that would be typical social engineering stuff. It would be, you know, I don't need to use anything except people's trust and familiarity. Uh, and he got, went in and got the diamonds. So both of those would be very, you know, sort of examples of where this is a low cost and to a certain extent low risk attack. Because right up until he took those diamonds, no one had any reason to, to suspect anything. Hmm. And what, what sort of people are are engaging in or using social engineering? I mean, is, is, is this just sort of people that would have been hacking systems anyway, have learned these new techniques or or does it come from sort of the, the con man who is actually figuring out how to move his skills into the tech world? I think I think we like to put, you know, it's nice if you can put people into categories. And unfortunately, social engineering crosses the borders of all of those things. You know, social engineering will be classed as manipulating another human being, you know, for personal gain. And I, I guess, you know, it's everything from, you know, people who are insider threats and organisations, people who are, you know, have got some kind of beef against the company and, and, and you know, will spread mischief or, or panic within their own organisation or steal down to organized criminals you know social engineering scams things like you know a fake help desks calling customers and saying we want to install you know your computer's at risk we're going to get you to install some um antivirus software and sort of talking people through that until they get some money out of them um that would be social engineering as well um and even and you're right you know your, your average hacker you know the type of hacker that people think they know the computer guy the tech guy also, many of those uh, criminal uh, hackers would use social engineering as part of a wider, more technical hack because at some point there's a human contact and a human entry point. So really it's everywhere. And as I say, we're just labelling it social engineering, but it's a criminal activity that's always been around. I like the idea of uh, the insider threat within the company, the, the disgruntled employee. How, how do companies manage um, or develop a, a culture of vigilance without putting staff under sort of the ring or making people miserable for going into work thinking that they're going to be micromanaged or something? It's difficult. I mean, you know, there are, it's all an insider threat, someone who, who, you know, works from the inside to defraud a company uh, or to cause trouble for an organization is the worst kind of social engineering in a way because people feel betrayed, right? You know, the team, this is one of our own and they went against us. Um, so, so the consequences of it happening are, are very severe, which almost justifies 
more vigilance within um, um, amongst employees and organisations saying, look, we've got to be slightly more suspicious, a little bit more secure. There are some technical um, applications and tools and companies who specialise um, in behavioural analytics. So they would look at the way people um, send emails, sign off emails, sort of patterns and routines. They'd look for exceptions to that. And from a technical point of view, that's fairly effective um, a lot of the time. You know, so, it, so it's not that people necessarily need to know that that's happening on, a, on any great level. But at the end of the day, it's keeping them safe. You know, looking out for these details keeps them safe. From a human point of view, I think what this this whole thing of like how do we stop people feeling guilty or that they're under scrutiny or suspicion when most of us are obviously just just honest people doing their job and the lancer lies in awareness training you know we need to people can't understand why they would be under scrutiny unless they understand the threat that we're all facing and what we have to remember is is that if a social engineer wants to get to an organisation, its people are the best route in. Mm. Any damage that's done to their reputation, their bank balance or their lives is just collateral damage for a social engineer. So by protecting the organisation, by being um, you know, a little bit more vigilant all of the time, People don't just protect their place of work, their employer, they protect themselves. And usually that's enough for people to, to understand and to justify uh, a little bit more uh, scrutiny in their day-to-day job. Perhaps there's a little bit of passive aggression involved as well. I mean, when, when you hear about, not, not even hacks, but serious security breaches, you hear that, oh, it comes down to a, a security patch that wasn't installed. And you sort of think, okay, IT departments really are on top of this stuff. Is this somebody that was just really annoyed with their job and left under a cloud or something? I always say there's three class, you know, there's three different badges I would put on an insider. So there's someone who makes the mistake, either just because they don't realise that they're being manipulated from the outside, or because operational procedure is poor or, or negligent, you know, in some way. And then you've got people who are um, up to mischief, you know, uh, and there are people in every company, in every workforce, who are less committed than others. You know, that's just that's just a fact. Mm. Um, so sometimes it could be someone who just doesn't bother to do it. Um, and sometimes it could be someone who, who, you know, does it by mistake or forgets to do something by mistake. I think the instances of people actually going out of their way, and I would call this one malice, so we have mistake, mischief, and, and now malice. Someone who really goes out of the way to sort of destroy a company or cause a lot of harm, whilst the most damaging uh, category is probably quite rare. Um, and, you know, we all, you know, that type of person will commit some sort of crime anyway, most likely um, at some point. So it's more a case of um, it's good sense again. You know, it's good sense. It's the way to sort of look out for that as, as an organization or as an employee and a team. And, you know, you want to be vigilant is to really get to know people. So in our technical world, what we tend to do is spend a lot of time, you know, looking at our phones, looking at the computer and not really interacting so well with other people. But when we know the people we work with really, really well, then you can spot, um, you know, out of the ordinary behaviour, suspicious behaviour better. And really that's the big lesson. In a digital age, we need to know people better than we ever did before. I, I like the idea of you raised there of suspicious behaviour. I mean, uh, as we become more dependent on technology, has this idea of suspicious behaviour changed? I mean, when you look at somebody that spends, you know, an hour a day in their workplace on a smartphone, does that become suspicious behaviour or is it just someone that's easily attracted? You know, what kind of 
new red flags are we starting to see? Or, you know, has people's behaviour always been thus? I think, I think what's suspicious for one person is not necessarily suspicious for another. And, and really, it's, it's a little bit like what I've just said. What you're looking for is to know people well and then look for mm. exceptional behaviour. You know, some of us are on our phones all the time, glued to the phone. Um, some of us are not glued to the phone quite as much. Um, so, you know, watch, which one's suspicious? You know, someone sends an email, which one's suspicious? So we really need to tailor... Um, what we think is suspicious to the individual. And that's even what the sort of technical uh, ways of analysing behaviour will do. They'll look at what's normal and then look for abnormal behaviour. So I guess it really comes down to that. It just comes down to um, everyone now with a phone and a computer, you know, is capable of committing um, criminal acts. But it's the type of person that you are that will determine whether you do that and how you do that. And really that's, a, that's still a human measure. One of uh, the areas you talk about, which I, I think is quite interesting, sort of shows that people hacking can be a force for uh, for good as well as evil in some respects, um, uh, which comes down to negotiating and coming up with sort of maybe the best deal for you in the workplace. Uh, how do you apply the principles of social engineering to, say, sitting down with an employer and either, and we'll say asking for a raise, which is a fairly common problem? So it's it's not that there's again and 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 what I have to say all the time is that there's any one particular you know magic bullet for this. What social engineering really is about, whether that's on a negative you know from an attack side or a defence side, is understanding people really well, understanding the psychology, understand what makes people um, triggers certain reactions in other people, and what makes people trust you. Now, if we were to apply that to a positive situation like a salary negotiation, the same principles would apply. You need to know exactly who am I opposite, um, what's this person uh, admire, you know, what are the qualities this person may think needs rewarding, um, how can I, you know, please this person, you know, how can I show them that I'm of value? And um, in negotiations, really, the most important thing is knowing your objectives and knowing what you want, and then knowing what your um, the other party wants and what the other party needs to fulfil their objectives. And so really... It's sort of a different thing in a way, but it's the same thing. In order to change someone's mind, you've got to be somewhat inside their head, right? You've got to be somewhat in it. Mm. And both social engineers, good and bad, and uh, negotiating or trying to persuade people of things in our normal lives and our business lives also rely on that, you know? We need to see things more from the other person's perspective. We need to see pictures inside other people's heads in order to, to really understand how they feel and what they might do. And then we can tailor our own behaviour positively uh, to take that into account. So that's really how you have to do it. It's so kind it's of a, simple. It's kind of, sorry, it's kind <laughs> of a strange form of empathy, really, isn't it? Just be, being able to read another person. I, maybe maybe an element of cold reading as well, where you're, you're looking for ticks and cues to, to tell people what they want to hear. Um, so where, where does your own interest in this field come from? In social engineering, yes. <laughs> so I, I'm I'm pretty much a lifelong social engineer. Um, so you know, sort of latterly, uh, I speak about a lot of conferences and, and do a lot of training in it, and, and and I do these kind of red team pen test events where we're hired, you know, to, by companies to sort of replicate attacks and then do the education piece that I've discussed with you on the staff to make them less vulnerable, um, and that's what happens now, but. 
but so there's a legitimate if you like career in, in pretending to be a criminal and um, and talking about these things like like this interview with yourself these days but i started out never thinking that it'd be a career um you know just 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 from liverpool in the early days when I, when I was very young um sort of around about you know early 80s kind of time you know liverpool was a was not a city that that it is now now we've got beautiful hotels and restaurants and coffee shops just like dublin has you know mm. just like parts of ireland has but back in the day we never had that and so kids looking for things to do we used to look in around some of the abandoned buildings that were in the city as kids do go and have a look around um and honestly, I just never lost the taste for that. Kept sort of looking around buildings, kept kind of working out how to get into places I shouldn't be, not with any criminal intent, just to have a look around. Um, and what's happened in the last, you know, few years and increasing with increasing momentum is that the security industry is absolutely booming at the moment because the threats are higher of all types, whether that be digital, physical, whatever. And with those increased threats comes increased demand for people who can replicate those threats and then show people how it was done and educate. So my interest in this, it wasn't kind of uh, something I ever set out to be an expert in, but I've ended up being an expert in it because I've done it my whole life. And um, it's only really the last sort of few years that people are really going to hire people to do this um, and let us talk about it because we realise the value of someone with that kind of view. So, yeah, it comes from bad behaviour back in the day. And that was Niall Kitson chatting with Jenny Radcliffe. You can find out more about Jenny and social engineering on her website at www.jennyradcliffe.com. That's our show for this week. Remember, if you want to personally get information on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more, visit our website techcentral.ie and listen to us again next week online or Friday at 6pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next week, from myself, Dusty, and from Niall, thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.